is inequality of self-determination and recognition within international law, which that is being sought to some degree. Probably don't want equality within that system because that system is defined by exclusion, right, of you. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden, or Austin Hayden Smith, and sometimes published, or sometimes I just go by Austin, or you, or my partner calls me Monty Plumple, so, you know, Wait, I got a bunch of you what? Yeah. <laughs> So it's uh, these flanimals. Do you know what flanimals are? Are they animals wearing flannel? No, they're like, I don't know. I think like Ricky Gervais and some other writing partner made them like years and years and years and years ago. And they're like, I don't know, like children's cartoons or something like that. And they all have these unique characteristics to them. And uh, we have given each other um, alternative identities within the world of flanimals. And uh, mine is Munty. Yeah. Monty Flumple. Monty Flumple. Wow, this is some kinky shit right here. We're getting into the beginning of the episode. This is Owls After Dark kind of <laughs> shit, man. It's really very YA and, and not kinky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's very YA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but so... Also, I got to say, there's no like consistency to what you're naming yourself at the beginning of these episodes you've been austin austin hayden austin hayden smith chunky monkey whatever it is it's all over the place man yeah i know i it's i i i contain multitudes you know so. <laughs> i actually i do have this this issue though so because obviously my full name is austin hayden smith and for most of my life i just went by austin smith and then when i got my first agent when i was got like 17 18 years old for acting uh, we went by Austin Hayden, and so it was Can't just Austin German Hayden was my... you want to be famous in America, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember my dad was like super offended by it, right? Because he thought I was <laughs> cutting, I was like separating myself from the family name, which maybe I was. But um, but so it was Austin Hayden. So then like my stage name was Austin Hayden, and so that's always been there. And so whenever I do acting work and, and anything in the entertainment world. It's Austin Hayden. However, when I produced Inventing the Future, I don't know why, but it was Austin Hayden Smith. So there's that's confusing. And then and then my publishing name for academic writing and for anything like legally is always either Austin Hayden Smith or Austin Smith. But my publishing name has now just become Austin Hayden Smith. So I, which is good because part of me wanted to separate like the acting side from my academic side, even though it's not difficult. Like if you just Google one or the other, I think they both come up. But still, it was kind of nice to be like, hey, Austin Hayden does weird body horror films or whatever. You might see him in an episode of some stupid TV show at some point, right? Like, like whatever. As Austin Hayden. But my publishing name is Austin Hayden Smith, so people could just read, you know, my book on Sartre or my new book uh, coming out soon on, like, finance and be like, oh, cool, that's, that's Austin Hayden Smith. So I'm always confused as to actually how to, like, brand myself. So I'm not very good at branding, essentially. So I will say, knowing nothing about that, uh, infinitely less than you do, um, Austin has a rich philosophical tradition, obviously. Right? JL. Uh, yeah. JL, for instance, right? Um, Hayden has that sort of artistic side, right? Like uh, the composer Hayden, right? Um, Smith 
has the sort of, you know, it's like Germanic, right? Um, so that obviously yeah. makes it like, you know, intellectual, you know. But it's too uh, close to, philosophical. to Schmidt and Carl. So, you know, you know. I mean, people on the left love Carl Schmidt. I mean, not in, you know, That's in true. a way of like endorsing his politics, but. Uh, That's true. I don't That's know. I, I, I do think things, like. Yeah. If you want, if you want the whole person, right, the artistic, creative side, and the philosophical, analytical side, you got to have all three names, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what do I do about all those credits that uh, have already just been done under Austin Hayden? You know. I mean, I- I'm not here to tell you what to maximize your profits, right? I'm just here to sort of, you know, conceptualize, <laughs> do some conceptual critique. That's what I'm here for. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Troy, for helping me figure that out. That's me. That's me. A, if you're, a, if you're you know what I'm gonna do? Night- <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait. I'm gonna just if go AHS. That's, <laughs> just, I, that's American Horror Story, though. Oh damn it! <laughs> I was gonna say if you were writing in the 19th century and you were a German biblical scholar, you'd be A. H. Smith. A. H. Smith. Most, I have honestly the most anonymous. I've totally. Right? <laughs> I yeah yeah. I've totally thought about that. No lie. I have totally thought about that. <laughs> Yeah, I was, oh, I was reading the, the analysis of the of the Masoretic uh, texts by A. H. Smith um, from nineteen thirty two, and they were yeah yeah first yeah that's that's exactly so he and he was you know a professor of Old Testament at uh, Cambridge or something like that. <laughs> uh, well, I'm Austin. Yeah, I'm Troy. You all know that though. There we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and today we're gonna kind of do a part two. Um, from our last episode where we talked about Israel and Palestine through the lens of an article by Ma- Michael Walzer uh, from The Atlantic called Even the Oppressed Have Obligations. And I actually happened to, to stumble upon an old, old article of his or essay of his from 1970, May of 1970, that is titled The Obligations of Oppressed Minorities. So this is a, a drum that he's been beating for decades now, apparently. But this article um, or this essay is you know, 10 times longer and quite a bit more involved and I think provides a little bit more nuance to to his argument that I think in some ways clarifies his position, but also I think in a lot of ways muddies the water a little bit as well. Um, but I think it does give a little bit more insight into that really small opinion piece that he wrote for The Atlantic. So that's what we're going to talk about in the main segment. Of course, then talking about that in the context of Israel-Palestine um, even though this older article, The Obligations of Oppressed Minorities, is not dealing with uh, Israel-Palestine particularly, whereas the new one that we critiqued last week does deal with them uh, directly, we're going to talk about it, I'm sure, tangentially uh, throughout the episode. So anything else you want to say up front, Troy? Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I'm really glad you brought this to my attention because I, I, I agree that it clarifies a number of the points in the article that we read last time. And I think it's going to be really interesting to talk about the different contexts in which these articles were written and how um, that, if anything, I think is as interesting as the actual arguments being made. Um, given that, uh, obviously, the, the article written in 1970 is, is, is right in the middle, slightly after um, the heyday of the civil rights movement. So that's obviously very explicitly what's on Walter's mind um, at the time. And also... After the War of 1967, in the middle of Vietnam, and he basically says that his book on uh, just and unjust wars was a response to the 67 war and the war in Vietnam, with the war of Vietnam being the illegitimate war, the unjust war, and the 1967 war 
on, with Israel being the just war and their preemptive action against Egypt, and then of course the regional conflict that that involved. So it's it, it's interesting to kind of think also within that historical context of this writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, is there any housekeeping stuff that we need to take care of ahead of time? Yeah, we just want to mention that uh, if you want to support us in some tangible ways, you can do so at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, we had the Patreon paused during November, even though we were releasing uh, content uh, last month, um, in part just because um, we had been gone for a long time and uh, we wanted to keep the patrons, uh, give them a sort of a, a freebie month. But we're starting it up again in December, um, which by the time you're hearing this, it will now be December. And uh, so if you want to join and um, send some some coins our way, that really helps out. We missed out, obviously, during the time we were on the hiatus, even though Austin was still paying for the website to host all of our episodes. <laughs> so that will really um, help us out in the future. Um, we do want to give a quick shout out to the several patrons who have joined us since we started. This is I'm sort of experimenting with figuring out who's signed up when, but as far as I can tell, um, it's uh, Taylor and Brandon and George. want to shout out you three for throwing some pennies our way. Um, if you signed up since then and I didn't just name you, first of all, I apologize. I'm experimenting with this. And uh, send us a quick uh, Twitter shout out and maybe you know, definitely yeah. we'll retweet you or do something to acknowledge you because we want to make sure that the patrons, the patrons know how appreciated that y'all are. Yeah. And if you're an OG and we haven't shouted you out, we're shouting you out also. Every single one of you. I don't know what your names are offhand because I'm not looking at the list, but we love all of you and um, we really are thankful for it. So we're back and uh, I think a large part of that also has to do with our new editor. Sean, can we give can we give her a shout out, Troy? Um, thanks. <laughs> thanks, babe, for um, She's killing doing it. the... She's killing it. Yeah, she's she's uh, she's given us life. She's kind of become a little bit of like the uh, unsung hero, the engine that is driving the possibility of the podcast now. And uh, I think it's given both of oh, it's given me a lot of fucking life and hope and something to look forward to every week because I, f- I fucking missed this, man. I really did. Yeah, dude, being able to just like do the fun part and not do the unfun part. That's a gift. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. So that's been great. Um, All right, cool. Housekeeping out of the way. Let's jump into the shitty minute. This is the way we start off every episode. It is the time to unload that which is bearing us down, that is pulling us into the earth, the luggage, the the shard that needs to be released out of the gaping anus. Um, Troy, (laughs) release yourself. Wasn't that a Luther quote? That was Luther. He he was the shard that was coming out of the gaping anus of the world, I believe. Yeah, nothing like calling yourself a piece of shit in the most poetic <laughs> way possible. <laughs> I know. So my shitty minute's pretty straightforward, and it'll be a good segue into getting into the larger discussion we're going to get into, so I'll keep it relatively brief. You've been, I've been seeing a lot of, um, and maybe this has kind of waned a bit in the past couple of weeks, but during the beginning of you know late October, early November, when the... Um, when the war in Israel-Palestine is going on, you see a number of sort of leftist American um, activists uh, sort of combining or integrating their sort of American leftist politics um, and sloganeering and things like that with support for Palestine, right? 
And so you see things mm. like uh, Queers for Palestine, right? That was sort of the paradigmatic one. And then there was some, you know, yeah. um, some, uh, what's the appropriate word for it? Like uh, um, ma- mouth bile spilling going on online about mm. there being like an obvious, ridiculous kind of contradiction or tension in uh, such uh, sloganeering, right? Um, yeah. And to some degree, I'm, I'm a, I, I worry a little bit about um, sort of the integration of American uh, activists kind of um, speak and jargon and lingo with internationalist um, political concerns, right? There can be some dangers uh, with that, especially if it means like viewing uh, international issues through the lens of like American domestic uh, political discourse, which is already itself almost entirely unmoored from reality, right? Let yeah. alone the reality of a different place. Like that that's an issue, right? But that's not what's really happening here, I don't think. Um, when people mm-hmm. like produce screeds about queries for Palestine and stuff like that, the assumption seems to be that, that look, um, you support people who hate you and who, if you were in their society, would oppress you, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and there's something like uh, obviously naive or something about that, right? And maybe there are some people who don't really like investigate things enough to, to know something like that, right? But I think for the most part, people kind of uh, understand that things like that exist, right? Um, I'm sure somebody in the room when they were like printing out the Queer for Palestine poster, like knew that um, uh, there are a number of social groups in, in Palestine that are not terribly friendly to to gay people, right? Um, yeah. That's That said, what, what would always be most about this whole issue is just like, the understanding of, of politics as this purely transactional thing, right? Where it's like, I only support people who in turn support me. Mm-hmm. And, and not in the sense of like reciprocation, but transaction. There's a difference between those two things, right? Reciprocation mm-hmm. is like, I support something that I think is independently good. And I have some um, sort of like measures, right? Like if, if, if the other side that I'm supporting does certain things like it, there's conditions on which my support exists. It's not completely unconditional, and no pol- political um, commitments should be completely unconditional, right? Or at least you know, no like concrete ones. Um, transactional politics is more like not like reciprocation. It would be more like um, the only reason to ever support anything is to get something personally out of it, right? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's times and places for there to be transactional politics. But viewing all of politics that way basically means anything like solidarity or universality is never, ever on the table. Right? And mm-hmm. that, I think, is certainly uh, evident in a lot of American political discourse that there is not really much of a notion of solidarity, universality. If anything, you remember when um, Bernie had that speech several years ago? Where he talked about like look to the person to your left, look to the person to your right. Yeah, loving are, are your you neighbor's willing, speech. Yeah, yeah, right. Are you are you willing to fight for that person even if you don't necessarily get what you want? Wasn't it also like sacrifice? Yeah, sacrifice yourself for that person. Yeah, are you willing to sort of fight for a political cause that you may not realize for yourself, right? Um, and that sort of language of universality mm. and solidarity was shocking, I think, to a lot of people, and is almost uninterpretable or unintelligible to most people on the right and in the center, sometimes center left of American politics, right? Um, And if anything, that seems to be Mm. sometimes the dividing line between sort of 
what I think is the left from the center left in American politics, right? Even if they support some of the same policies, uh, it's more of this sort of general philosophical view on how politics works, right? Like I want universal healthcare and universal free education and things like this for everybody, including like radical far right conservatives, right? I want them to have that too. It's a universal commitment or a commitment to right. universality, right? And so right. if someone's right, right. unable to make that kind of um, commitment intelligible to them, that speaks more to their sort of, I think, poverty of, of thinking about how politics works than anything else. Um, so I just wanted to to mention that and because there's, there's been a lot of, additionally, there's been a lot of talk about like the split between the left and the center left on this Israel-Palestine issue, right? And I think a lot of it that you can't reduce it to one thing, but some of it is about this, right? Some of it is like, are we committed to a universal politics, right? Of liberation and universal enfranchisement and equal rights and things like this. Or is that transactional? Is that kind of like depend on, you know, what we can get out of it ultimately? And that it's not, again, reasonable just to that sort of difference, but there is a difference there. Um, and it seems like people who otherwise hold a lot of leftist positions think about politics in that latter way, um, in a way that allows them to support things in Israel-Palestine that they would never support domestically. Hmm. Yeah, I, I heard a similar conversation recently um, amongst some, some figures of the new, the new right or whatever the fuck it's called, right? Um, people who were kind of, you know, members of either like the Marxist left or were interested in, in um, like critical politics uh, who are now kind of like very critical of the woke, the woke, the wokes, whatever the fuck uh, they want to call it, <laughs> the wokerati, the wokerati. Um, and yeah, they made, they made the same point, you know, and, and I was listening to this podcast and it felt very, it felt very disingenuous in, in this sense that it was like um, the critique is oftentimes that well politics isn't really politics it's just aesthetics now and it's sloganeering yada 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 from within the kind of uh, wokerati but yet they were accepting the very same terms of the debate because they were responding to it as though they could only think of the inconsistencies that they were trying to highlight or the tensions that they were trying to highlight within the kind of queers for palestine movement that was like oh my god how could you possibly actually care for palestinian lives when if you went over there it's kind of like when people are like oh you're so pro-palestine why don't you go try to live over there it's like wait wait, wait a second here can we not recognize that Maybe, of course, there are members that were a part of the queer for Palestine's or, uh, Palestine movement that probably hadn't even thought about it. And if you mentioned it to them, they're like, oh, yeah, you know what? Fuck them. But that doesn't mean that the majority of people and even those people that are there like, yes, therefore, they don't deserve to have a life that is better, where they can flourish and pursue the possibilities of the good life. Which I think is actually the truly, like you said, universalist, but even mature position that is kind of like, yeah, you know what? Even if they don't respect me in that way, that doesn't negate their their rights or that doesn't negate something that is even maybe greater than like international law and the conception of rights. But that doesn't even negate this ideal that we should strive towards, which is like, I don't know, human flourishing or happiness or beneficence or something, you know, um, that, that people should have... Um, opportunities to be able to flourish in a world. And even if they don't love me, that's okay. I still think that we shouldn't allow for injustices and things like that to be perpetrated upon them. 
And I think that's much more of a sticky remark because then you do allow for some sort of political antagonism in a debate where it's like, yeah, but what would that world look like when you do have a kind of clash of cultural expressions and cultural ideologies that like literally are 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 so confrontational, right? Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, I don't think that you can just hand wave away people and say, oh, they're just clearly um, either unaware or they're being inconsistent because there is, I think, a lot of people who they're – it's not inconsistent, but they're aware that what they're advocating is for something that kind of supersedes those other debates. Not that they're gone, but just that they're in the parking garage for a moment, right? Like they're just parked for a second. They're still there, and we still need to fight for the rights of queer lives in Palestine, for example, Um but and for the well-being of lives in Palestine, but that doesn't mean that we wouldn't like support a ceasefire so that babies aren't being bombed, right? Like to me, I just don't understand why someone would rush to that unless they were being disingenuous because they just needed to score aesthetic points, which is then buying into the whole culture war thing, and and that to me is very frustrating and infuriating for people who I know think deeply about these things and have thought deeply about these things, and I know that if you truly sat with them, that they would be able to articulate that. But I feel like they're just trying to score cultural points with their new kind of fanboys that are listening to them or that are like following them or that are sitting at home that can be like, that's right, that's right, that's right. They're just trying to find inconsistencies everywhere, which does feel very transactional to me, essentially, because it's engaging in this this world of like memes or slogans or ideas that are all kind of removed from these more kind of like meaty universalist principles. And so to me, it all seems very vacuous and transactional because it can only take place at the level of like sharing concepts or sharing ideas that have always already been mediatized by social media imagery and things like that, all for the purpose of what Michelle Fair calls like reputational value, right? Like it's, we're just these portfolio managers that are accumulating these assets and we're trying to get people to invest in them. And this seems like that to me. It's like they're just trying to flesh out their portfolios so that the people that are their followers or that are listening to them or that encourage them or give them you know, some sort of like emotional validity will continue to invest in them. And I think that, that's, I think that itself is just a consequence of a neoliberal rationality. And, and these are people who oftentimes are supposedly critical of the neoliberalization of everything, but they've just kind of turned their own speech into forms of financial assets. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the same sort of reductionism um, that happens in yeah. uh, neoliberalism at large. So, um, do you think, like, do you think, do you think that it is this, like, because it's not politics? Like, I've heard, you, you've heard this for a while, I'm sure, that, like, there's a difference between politics and aesthetics. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, we're not doing politics anymore. It's just all about, like, the aesthetic. And, and I know some people, like, on the radical left, like, I got, you know, the people that you might even call, like, quote-unquote tankies, disparagingly, which I, I don't know if, uh, if they would <laughs> embrace that term, but who literally are like, yeah, fuck it. Let's just engage at that level of aesthetics and then just do the propaganda better, you know, or do the sloganeering better to just like shock people um i don't know do you do you see that division between like politics and aesthetics and do you see any value for engaging in mere aesthetics at this level like in supposedly political discourse yeah i mean i think you know what i'll say to that like good luck beating the right at their own game right <laughs> um yeah yeah yeah, like yeah. They, they have a natural advantage on that turf um 
given the money interests that are involved. Well, given the money interests okay. that are involved, right? That's 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 what allows propaganda to work, other than you know being like sophisticatedly uh, presented or whatever. Yeah, maybe people on the left have some ability there, having more rhetoricians or something. But really, it comes down to the moneyed interests there, as far as propaganda working, right? Just buy up all the propagandists. Um, and you, so first of all, you're never going to win at that game against the right. But even if you did, like that win would be vacuous. Like the the, the reason we're motivated for any of these things, anyways, is because we care about those universal principles, or most actually, we care about the people, right? And the way that we care about the people is through these universalist principles, right? And trying to enact them and realize them. And if like if you only care about the aesthetics as a sort of like a, I don't know, prudential, strategic, or tactical way, uh, that in the end, that I think that just shows that you don't actually care about the things that you want to care about. It seems like to me, right? Mm. Um, it's not like one of those like, oh, we're gonna um, win whatever way necessary, sort of thing. Because um, first of all, you're not gonna win that way. I don't think anyway. But even if you did, um, I don't know. It just seems like the aestheticization of, of politics is a kind of reductionism in a way that obscures the actual valuable reality that's trying to be realized. And we'll talk about this in the main segment, right? I think Walter even kind of talks about this in, in his um, use of Marx and Trotsky um, hmm. to talk about some of uh, their opponents and those that um, Walter sort of names as uh, sort of the, the terrorists, or I think he calls it something like terrorist logic, right? Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a similar idea. So we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Yeah. Well, I, the last thing I'll say is, and, and I don't know if this is true with regards to the to, to giving something else that is is other than just the moneyed interests. And but you know, like, is there a sense? And this is kind of riffing on stuff that Todd McGowan has talked about. But is there a sense in which the sloganeering is just also better on the right? Like, like it's more effective. It it there's a freedom to it and an enjoyment in it, even if it's for kind of maybe gross ends. Um, and maybe even coming from gross places, but that it's still free and it still appeals to something within us, like certain impulses within us that m- maybe people can latch onto a little bit more than some sort of like nuanced take on things or some sort of critique of something which requires a little bit more thought and insight and patience and that that doesn't always go step in line with self-interest. And so maybe that's another thing is that when sloganeering can appeal to those interests and can reinform biases, then it becomes political, uh, pol- more politically expedient. And I don't mean that like the left can't and doesn't engage in sloganeering that that doesn't like conform to biases, because like so much of like critiques of the quote unquote woke left, that's precisely it, right? Is that it's sloganeering to just justify your own positions, right? And a lot of these critiques of of the 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 wokerati in their alignment with Palestine is precisely that that it's like oh well you're just looking for any reason to justify like anti-whiteness or anti-colonialism or something like that right um, and so you know there is a, a a kind of sense it's like oh every it's a it's a real cynicism right it's like everyone's just out for their own interests and uh, that's kind of what defines you and in some ways that that that, that is how things operate right. But it's not always the case, and it's not just reducible to that, and it's not just generalizable within that matrix. Um, but nevertheless, I do wonder if if just the sloganeering on the right is better. Like, here's an example. Here's an example. So in Australia, they recently had this vote. Um, it was a referendum for 
I don't know if you heard about it. It was called like the voice vote. Did you hear about this? To I don't think give so, no. indigenous people a voice to parliament. So essentially um, it was about whether or not um, there ought to be a kind of tribunal or a kind of committee that would consult with parliament about issues pertaining to First Nations communities around Australia. That's all it was. It wasn't like giving them their own branch of government or giving them some sort of like executive powers or something like that. It was basically like, hey, issues pertaining to um, concerns dealing with the indigenous community, uh, we want to set up this thing called a voice to parliament where uh, there will be a committee of elders within communities around Australia that will advise. That was kind of it, right? And when it was first proposed, like the pre-polling was that overwhelmingly people in Australia were like, yeah, let's, that sounds great because they've often so, so long not been consulted and advised in with the kind of plundering of lands and resources. And, you know, um, even investment uh, initiatives and things like that were done not uh, f- being led by First Nations voices. So it was like, oh, yeah, cool. That, that sounds great. And then, of course, it's like a step on the way towards ultimately there being a treaty, um, which has never been granted right or has never been implemented so anyway what happened was within the the final year of the campaign or even really the final handful of months of the campaign the opposition to this um referendum the no voters they put together a bunch of campaigns and slogans that really took off and they were actually really 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 effective and casting doubt over what this vote would do and it was appealing to things like oh my god if you do this then you're basically just creating racial divisions rather than integrating people, right? Because then it's like you have a special group of people over here and then the rest of us Australians over here. And then other people were like, oh no, and then if you do this, then it's going to give them right to like imminent domain and they're going to be able to just take your land because they can just claim, actually, that's indigenous land and they're going to take your land back and they won't have to ask any anybody and the government's just going to be like, yeah, that's right, that's now indigenous land. So they're going to take your house from you or your business from you or something like that. And then um, the other big one was like, if you don't understand, if you don't know, vote no. Right? Like, if you don't really quite understand what this whole voice to parliament thing is, if you don't know, then just vote no. And so basically, it was a really clever campaign, and the no vote won kind of, I think, like 60 40 or something like that. Like, really pretty big. So the, the vote didn't pass, right? Or the referendum didn't pass. And um, it just it makes me think that there was, like, you, you could see the, 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 the momentum behind the no vote, whereas the yes vote was kind of. St- Stalled in, and all they did was just respond to the no vote campaign. It was like, no, but you don't understand. You're just being racist, or you're just being bigoted, or you're, you know what I mean? And it was just, it was purely from within that critical sense. And they didn't have kind of, although the, the, the no campaign was also critical in its own position as well, but it just felt like what happened was it was seeding the ground of the debate to the kind of like passion of the no vote. And the passion was just so. Um, so heightened and it didn't seem to be matched from the left because they were kind of like I don't know it's because they were or the left it, it did get drawn across right left boundaries I guess in the end which which maybe is my own way of kind of seeing it and but it, it felt like that the that the yes vote um, which or the yes voters that they just didn't have they weren't able to have their own like independent passion but it was always warding off those flaming darts. And I wonder if the left is trapped in that kind of position because it's always got to ward off those kind of flaming darts that are coming in. It's it's not as able to stand in its grounds and say, actually, what we're advocating for is a life of 
justice, a life of love, a life of acceptance, a life of whatever, 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 and start like extolling the virtues of it. And so it gets trapped in that kind of critical posture. And so the passion, the enjoyment, the the the, the light is is dwindled a little bit, it seems like. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting. Actually, it'd be fun to do a whole episode on the aestheticization of politics and talk about some of this stuff because I have some thoughts, but I don't I don't have like a holistic way of kind of capturing them. I guess just briefly because we've spent a lot of time on this already. Um, it seems like that especially um, the voice vote in, uh, in Australia, and amongst I can think of many other examples of how the same sort of dynamic dynamic works right in U.S. and elsewhere is like the the sort of what are the values that are being aestheticized, right, on the right and the left, to, to put it crudely, right, just to sort of set up a kind of formal analysis of it. Usually, and I'm just kind of following like Corey Robbins' work, who I'm, um, I really appreciate on this on this topic, like fear, fear and security are the things that are that are usually the tools mm. of the right, right. The the, the aestheticization is one of stoking fear. And the political value at hand is security, right? Which is a real political value. That's why it has some purchase, right? Um, and of course, there's other things going on, like you know, there's some enjoyment of cruelty and and, and uh, social subordination stuff like that that happens too, right? Um, the issue seems to be like for me, the reason why the right sometimes seems better at this has to do really with just sort of context, right? Like, um, it really depends a lot on which values individuals are most sort of drawn to in a given context uh, to see why one sort of aesthetic uh, formalization of them has more purchase, right? Other than like, you know, how effective is the presentation and persuasion and stuff like that, which matters too. And it seems to me like security matters. And so when someone really is afraid that their security is being sort of sacrificed on the altar of virtue signaling or whatever, right, then they're going to sort of have their fear stoked. And fear is one of those things that's immediately um, action guiding, right? Like when you fear something, you have to react immediately. Whereas when you care about things like solidarity and freedom and equality and justice, those are not immediately action guiding in the same way, right? But we care about them more universally, I think, unless someone's completely just nihilistic in a way that I think has more to do with, you know, their own personal story or what kind of society they're in or something like that, right? Um, So the issue there is more about like which one's more immediately action guiding um, and so it has more purchase for that reason. And so like if if we take that in hand, I think we can see like you can do a good aestheticization of politics in a way that's integrated with the political values that that people care about, like freedom, justice, equality, um, so on and so forth, uh, fraternity, whatever. Um, and yeah, you have the the issue of like it's not as immediately action guiding, and so if if someone's able to stoke fear in a really effective way, it's going to be difficult to overcome that, right? But in the long term, right, uh, you win by having your good aesthetics moored together and integrated with political values that people care about. And it seems mm. like, I don't know, yeah, you lose sometimes the battle, but if you do it right, it seems like, I, I certainly don't believe that, you know, history bends towards justice or whatever, right? But there is a kind <laughs> of progression to human history in realizing some of these really important political values, right? 
Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going to mm-hmm. win out for sure, right? But um, there's a reason I think why we're oriented towards those things and things like security. You know, some political theorists like your Hobbes or whatever think those are, that's really the only enabling political value, right? But that's that's I think you know why those kinds of views are wrong is that there's obviously much more um, of political value than than merely security. This is an interesting segue that we can use to talk about the Walzer article and, and continue the conversation from last week. I was just at a conference over the past couple of days here in Sydney, the Australasian Society of Continental Philosophy. Fucking great group. Join it if you're in Australia and you're looking for a cool philosophy society to be a part of. Um, their annual conference, big, big freaking conference over three days and um, really great stuff. And I was in a talk yesterday with Andrew Benjamin. Do you know Andrew Benjamin's work? I don't think I do. He's great. He's probably one of the preeminent continental philosophers from Australia, even though he's lived around the uh, continent uh, as well. I first met him in 2010 or 11 or 12 or something like that when he came to Scotland in Dundee and gave a like a few weeks, I think, he was around as a visiting scholar. And we basically worked through um, like Hegel's uh, early writings on religion and stuff like that. For It was great. It was like line-by-line reading. Um, and, um, and a couple of other seminars that he led as well. And then I ended up taking a class with him through a place where I teach as well called the Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy, uh, where, by the way, I'm doing another class. Uh, side note, uh, I'll be teaching a class called like a critique of Keynesian rationality where we're going to look at Keynes and the philosophy that informs Keynesian thought and then how that informs his later writings on political economy and how that um, then leads towards the justification of uh, technocratic managerialism. So check out my class, Melbourne School of Continental Philosophy. MSCP. It's online. It's cheap, affordable, and you get to hang out with me for a week. Um, this sounds awesome. Anyway, yeah, it'll be cool. Um, but uh, but so I took a class with him on Heidegger's identity and difference, and he's he's basically like a Walter Benjamin, Agamben, Heidegger, but also Hegel. Like he, but he's also one of those guys that just kind of like he just knows everything, right? Um, he's been around for a long time. <laughs> He just under he the the continental tradition and but also he also has a real interest in like ancient philosophy and the classics and which he he says like his favorite Italian boy he said is Dante, um so he gave a talk about it was called like from the Domus to the herbs and what he was really interested in was how it is that we can understand life as being housed, right and so he talks a little bit about like the logic of architecture. And how architecture, the kind of science of architecture, presumes that life is housed in a particular way. And that philosophy has always tried to understand life in, in the kind of pursuit of the ideal of the good life. And in that pursuit, which then relates to the efforts of architecturalists or builders or city building, society building, what it's led to is the construction of walls. And in the construction of walls, that's created isolation right? Because certain people were cut off from the pursuit of the good life. So the pursuit of the good life was always limited in its pursuit and maybe even in its very formulation in the first place, right? As Athens didn't necessarily allow for the full pursuit of the good life for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which the pursuit of the good life and the very foundations of kind of like Western 
politicking has always been um, rooted in social division. And he spent a lot of time talking about like walls, like what is what is the construction of, of a wall? And he actually had these like kind of amazing photos that were really old, like like thousands of years old, some of them, and then a couple others that are just like hundreds of years old. But these photos depict various different understandings of like the building of the walls of Rome. And they the, the old one that he showed, like the first one that he showed, that he was like, let's look at this. What's interesting was is it was like the slaves were building the wall, right? So like the this is kind of a very Agambinian point. The very people who were like constructing it were the people who were outside and reduced to just mere life, right? And um, they were constructing it in order then, to exclude themselves in the process, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then what was interesting about this particular image was that there was a lady, um, a vassal of the court, just like sitting there and overseeing the process. And not only are there are there interesting, like kind of like gendered expressions taking place there, but also um, interesting sort of like uh, hierarchical divisions being expressed in that as well, because she's the sort of representative of the promise of peace right and the the promise of peace that is sort of like offered to the slave but never actually even possibly going to be granted you know and um so i've been thinking a lot i mean it was just a really great panel and an interesting discussion because what i've been thinking a lot about is kind of how that that tendency towards the construction of walls itself translates also into not just thinking about things in terms of like the literal slaves who are constructing the literal walls, but like um, populations, minority populations who are exploited and disregarded because they don't fit within the financialized logic of a global neoliberal order, right? So refugees need to be expelled because uh, you need to make sure that you can continue to get loans for your nation or you need to make sure that you... Uh, can keep your bond rating at a certain point so international investors will continue to like keep capital flowing into your borders, right? Or you engage in swaps like they did in Ireland and Portugal where they're like, hey, we're going to export our unhirables, you know, our surplus populations elsewhere so that we can like court financial investors to come in or tech companies like they did in Ireland where it's like, hey, LinkedIn and Facebook, come build an office here and you'll, you know, basically have like no tax break, uh, tax uh, threshold, and uh, you can do that because we're guaranteeing that our our national asset portfolio is clean because we've kind of expelled the discredited population, right? And um, so it's done in various different ways. But so I've been thinking a lot about like how this 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 activity is continuing. And one of the people who responded to Benjamin's paper was kind of pressing some of his ideas further and thinking about how it's like the image of Rome itself has such a sort of almost like a master signifier. It has such a sort of stranglehold over the West's entire conception of how we even understand politics because it presumes that that like the nation is the guarantor of peace as it was in Rome or the guarantor of the pursuit of life, liberty, and the right to property or happiness or whatever, right? Depending on your formulation of it. Or then you have the social contract that is like, okay, cool, like, the Hobbesian or sort of like post-Hobbesian conceptions of the social contract that's like, cool, like the state will grant certain things to you and you therefore offer your fidelity to it, right? And so then it has to like court interest from populations 
um, by offering them some sort of incentives so that they engage in the social contract, right? But then there are, of course, people who are excluded within various strata, people who are fully excluded, people who are partially excluded, people who are less excluded and then only a little bit excluded, and then people who are like fully included, right? The full participants, the drivers, the people with capital power and political power, etc. And I feel like this kind of relates because it's like maybe the 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 conception of the state that we just presume is the one that ought to be the one that drives politics itself is something that is itself contingent that ought not to be the domineering thing by which we measure all of our politicking. Yeah, this is really interesting. I was thinking while you were um, talking about Benjamin's uh, paper that you could write a whole history of philosophy based entirely on the concept of home. Because <laughs> like I was thinking, mm. okay, I, I can see that. I can also see an alternative conception of of being of a home and like that goes through like a house or home actually I think is better because home has a different okay. connotation right like it's, it's a sort of enabling thing that allows you to do other things of value right being in a home as opposed to merely a house right so like Hegel conceives of freedom famously as being at home with oneself with the other right um so being at home with oneself there's a kind of um I don't know what the word is like. Uh, there's there's a term for this, but I just can't remember off the top of my head. Like homedness, right? Right? Or being um, within a home, or feeling at home, or whatever, right? And that's I think important because, and of course, homes existed long before nation states, long before Rome, right? Long before mm-hmm. almost anything else in human history, right? Um, long before civilization, homes existed, and so the the original function of a home, right, isn't to exclude people necessarily, although it can do that, right? It's to protect oneself from the elements. That's the original function of the home, right? Uh, to allow you mm-hmm. to do the things that matter to you that you wouldn't be able to do if you were merely out in the elements because the world is almost completely inhospitable to all the things that we care about, right? Um, so mm-hmm. you have homes for that reason. And so it can obviously that, – that proper function can be abused in the ways that, that, that exclude people, right? Um, but it doesn't have to. It can, it's also, the home is also the place where you have community. Right, you know, we both grew up in Southern California, so you can do lots of community outside. But that's mm. not what happens in most of the world. <laughs> in most of the world, you can't just always, you know, do everything you want outside. Um, so hmm. community happens hmm. inside of a home in many cases and within walls. Um, so there's a kind of like duality there, where the same thing which functions to enable all the things we value is also the thing that's used abusively. Uh, to exclude others and do the things that are sort of perpetrate injustice. So yeah, again, it feels like you can kind of do a whole dual history of um, justice and injustice just by thinking about how homes work or maybe even just how and, and, like physical structures work, I guess. Yeah. And I, and I think that's kind of, so a couple of things, one, like there's a lot of Heidegger scholarship and like post Levinasian and Heideggerian scholarship that does deal with this because Heidegger spends a lot of time talking about yeah. dwelling and the relationship of dwelling with being, right? But but also one of the points that Benjamin made, I don't know if it was in response to a paper, one of the, because it was like he gave a paper and then there were two response papers to his papers. And then of course there were questions from the audience, but someone said something and his response was kind of like, actually, it's interesting because there were feminist critiques um, of this, this 
concept of architecturalism and, and things like that of constructing in certain ways and what they sought to do then was actually through the Bauhaus movement like in the early early 20th century was reconceive of how you can actually build a house to create a different conception of dwelling or or the home where you don't prioritize like the domesticity that is gendered for women in the kitchen and then here and then. but if you change the structure in which you actually dwell it changes your own kind of like moving through of the space and it changes mm -hmm. the hierarchy and the prioritization of how you move through those spaces which makes a lot of sense that that people would have tried to kind of engage in that right that you he says it didn't work ultimately um you know and and it, it kind of didn't like transform the tendencies towards architectural construction in the way that maybe people would have hoped but at least there's something theoretically interesting there as people aware of how it is that our construction of architectural spaces how it intimately relates to our very conceptions of dwelling and who who can live where and how can they live in those spaces and that's speaking about a house but speaking about the city even if we don't have walls in our city in the kind of like literal sense although sometimes you know, Gaza, there are walls, um, you know, like walls mm -hmm. are literally erected in certain places. Um, even even if we don't speak of them in literal terms, but maybe more kind of like international boundaries or even in metaphorical terms, you know, barriers of entry, right? Like who can be employable here and who is not allowed to be employable here or redlining in the United States, you know, um, or whether it's implemented legally or just kind of uh, a normative understanding, right? That this tendency to, towards kind of the construction of our spaces in order to decipher who has full citizenship and then who's just reducible to, you know, the the uh, excluded. Um, it, it's important to kind of work through, I think, how those tendencies take place and how they could be kind of reconstructed and like what effects do they have over the citizenry or over the population, you know? Yeah, that seems to be the key, right? The architectural features are um, like a constitutive part of the way society is organized and not just some accidental feature or something like that. Yeah, 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 definitely. And and I was thinking about that in regards to this Walzer essay because he spends so much time talking about like within democratic society, you know, the oppressed, they, they have grievances that are clearly legitimate and understandable. Um, but what what should be the response and what i spent a lot of time thinking was is is like he seems to say that like the slave in the term that we were just talking about like the slave of antiquity or like the fully 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 uh, oppressed the absolutely radically oppressed that they have a total legitimate understanding for their kind of like outburst of violence and maybe we can't ever say anything against that but he says but that's different in democratic societies that's not quite what we're dealing with it's not the same situation and to me, it seems like, but how do you make those demarcations? And what, what, what are the criteria that allows us to determine if this expression is somehow outside of the, the right approaches towards transformation that supposedly occur within a democratic society? And I just found that slippage to be one that... I still didn't, I, I didn't come away with a clear understanding of. And the reason that that's important is because going back to his more recent article in our discussion last week, he obviously invalidates the sort of like pro-Palestinian resistance insofar as he believes that it is acting in the service of terrorism because he sees Hamas as 
an Ill- the, the resistance movement, particularly with Hamas, as being an illegitimate terrorist organization. And so therefore, the resistance movement aligned with them is, is therefore disqualified. But in this instance, it's kind of like, but, but he just also thinks that maybe, and maybe his, his ideas changed on this, but he thinks that like the totally radically excluded do have a sort of legitimate explanation for why they would engage in, in that type of like violent revolutionary activity. So I just found that to be a little bit clear but unclear, right? He clarifies it, and then it, it a little bit, I, I still have more questions. Yeah, let me let me try to make his case then, because you know this article. Um, I should say we're transitioning now, talking about the the article from 1970 called "The Obligations of Oppressed Minorities." Um, in the beginning of the article, he says, "Look, there's just two. Um, there's a sort of bifurcation you can make between disobedience or political violence of some sort that exists in." Um, cases where individuals are, in a sense, totally oppressed, right? So we had the paradigmatic example there is the enslaved person, right? The enslaved person has every right to kill their master, and there is no like amount of violence against the oppressor that's like unintelligible, right? It makes perfect sense, and there's nothing that can be said against that, right? Uh, and that mm-hmm. seems right. Um, then there's putative democracies, right? And so there's this, you know, there's a little bit of slippage here between like, well. It's a thing that is a democracy. So individuals have some say. It may be largely formal for those who are oppressed, but they have some say, right? Um, and in those kinds of situations, it seems like even classical theorists, like you know, not classical, but you know, modern theorists like uh, Rousseau and Locke, kind of say, well, when justice is not done, there's no legitimate state, and so there's no obligations, right? So kind of the same thing as the slave, right? Any kind of injustice means any uh, obligations for the oppressed don't hold, right? And so Welch is kind of saying like, ah, this seems wrong. It seems something importantly different about at least putative democracies. And here's I think how he tries to cash how he tries to, uh, how he tries to cash it out. So he uses the example of like in the the um, radical black freedom struggle in the U.S. Right? Um, and it seems like the argument is look. What the obligations that the activist has aren't actually, or at least the important ones, aren't to like the state or to you know the um, citizens who are part of the majority class, right? They're to the people that the activist represents. That's what matters, right? The activist needs to have some integral connection with the people that the activist represents. And then seek to realize what they politically value, right? So the idea is like, look, if you're um, fighting for black freedom in America in the 60s, like you should ask the people who you represent as an activist, what do you want? Do you want um, liberation from the struggle? And if you do, what is that? What constitutes that, right? Is it like full scale revolution or is it? integration into the existing order more or less with changes to the existing order such as to allow that kind of integration, right? I think Walter's claim is, look, he thinks, and this, you know, this is an empirical question. You actually have to like look at the like data and ask people to figure this out, right? But hmm. largely individuals who cared about the black freedom struggle, who were, who were oppressed um, in that struggle, 
wanted equal rights. Like they wanted integration more or less into the system with, of course, changes to the system such as to allow that to happen, right? They didn't think it was a lost cause, so to speak, right? If that's true, then if you're an activist and you engage in terrorist actions against the state, that actually makes it basically impossible for that integration to the system to occur, right? It's shooting so, yourself in the foot. Yeah. Yeah, basically. I mean, shooting your the people you're representing in the foot, at least. <laughs> Maybe you don't care. Yeah, about that, shooting them, but in, you should. Shooting them the, in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the idea is you should. Your obligations are to the people you claim to represent. Otherwise, you're kind of lying. And that's the what's sort of. But if you engage it, in right? those terrorist activities, then you're going to basically undermine your cause because now the movement's illegitimate. Right. It's illegitimate. Um, and also, I think there's a, there's a claim here that I thought was striking. Uh, he says, equal rights cannot be won by a revolutionary attack upon the social and political structures within which equality is being sought. Right. And so that seems to be, look, if it's true that individuals in the black radical uh, freedom struggle wanted integration to the system and to win equal rights with other members of that system, then uh, a violent attack upon that system is not likely to achieve that. So even just prudentially, it seems to be a failure to engage in violent kind of terrorist actions, right? But then also morally, it's a failure, not because or merely because it harms innocents if, if, if it does do that, but because it betrays the activists' primary obligations, which are to the people they claim they represent, right? And that seems mm-hmm. like the important thing, which was kind of lacking, I think, in Walter's article we read last time. Because it seemed to be like he did mention that like he thinks um, the Hamas terrorists violate or betray Palestinians, but he also literally says they've forgotten their obligations to you and me. That's the last line of the article, which I kind of scoffed at because it's like they don't care about their obligations to you and me, (laughs) nor should they. Mm, Right? mm. They should. They should care about their obligations to Palestinians. And that seems like an empirical question. Whether or not Palestinians view Hamas as legitimate is an empirical question. I don't know the answer to that. It seems like no one really knows the answer to that because it's very complicated. Um, and there might be some reasons to think that legitimacy um, that's won by Hamas in uh, Gaza is for reasons. Whether or not they're good enough reasons is obviously debatable, right? Um, just, But again, look at the differences between the West Bank and, and Gaza to see why Hamas might have some legitimacy with some Palestinians in Gaza. Anyway, mm. that seems to be Walter's argument, right? And as far as it goes, that seems more or less right to me um, with lots of caveats about like, are the premises all true in this argument? Yeah, I mean, if you want to win equal rights in a currently existing system to be integrated into that system... Attacking the system such as to destroy it is not likely to get you that end, right? Um, yeah. That seems right. But, of course, there's can lots I, can to I, discuss. Yeah, go. Can I interject something real quick here just to add to this? And please don't forget because I want to I keep letting you riff. But also I think something to add to this that I found really interesting is Walter talks about how the kind of terrorist activity is a counter-elitist movement. So mm. I think he would – essentially say that it's not serving the actual cry of the oppressed as much as it is some sort of alternative or counter bureaucratic entity and and i and i and i found that really interesting because is there a sense in which that would be the critique that he would level against hamas that it isn't truly serving the interests of the majority of palestinian voices that are oppressed but rather it's serving a sort of alternative political 
bureaucratic and therefore elitist organization, which you could then level against from this perspective, right, from the social democratic perspective, against any sort of revolutionary movement, right, which is what you hear all the time. That's like, ah, Lula's uh, organization in Brazil is just corrupt and, um, you know, Chavez in Venezuela was just corrupt and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's reducible to, well, it's not really a revolutionary movement because it's actually just some sort of corrupt, corrupt bureaucratic elitism. And you hear that as like, a way to shut down any sort of critiques against the status quo because it's like, oh, so you just want to erect some sort of elitist thing because look at the Soviet Union and how they just lined the coffers or retained political power for the people who were the elites and look at here and look at there, right? And 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 I think that maybe a similar critique would be leveled from this perspective against um, Hamas and maybe even against the current sort of like supporters of pro-Palestinian resistance and I think that going back to his, at least our our projection that he's critiquing college students on college campuses, again, that's another elite, right? That's another elite that are on these college campuses that are just trying to reinforce their quote-unquote woke ideologies, and it's basically just another um, alternative bureaucratic desire for um, putative left. It's not truly left, but sort of, sort of like a putative left um, elitist bureaucratic um, claim over the political landscape. Yeah, well, well, first of all, there's a little bit of an equivocation there between what constitutes an elite, right? Because, like, at one point, Walter's saying he's contrasting elite with basically like proletarians, and he quotes Trotsky, like the the um, the revolution of the workers has to happen with the workers, right? Um, so, like, college students are not elites in that sense, right? They're much closer to being proletarians. Uh, maybe eventually the kids at Harvard are going to largely be non-proletarians, right? But not as college students. Um, so that's just elites in like a cultural sense versus elites in a in a class sense, right? Um, but anyway, like just to reinforce the point that's being made here, like this isn't just a problem to worry about with revolutionary movements. This is a problem of every single social movement that's ever existed. Social movements are led by elites, right? I mean, they're usually led by rhetorically... Uh, efficient, like elites. Martin Luther King <laughs> was an elite. He was a PhD holder, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, and this, this is not to say that social movements are therefore like unjustified or illegitimate, but it just means every single social movement has a problem with legitimacy because it's not democratic. The leaders are not decided by mm. the people, right? They're sort of organically or sometimes, you know, inorganically through like massaging of elites. Um, organized in this really hierarchical way. And so every social movement has this problem. This is not just a problem that like only revolutionary movements have, although maybe revolutionary movements have them to a greater degree because of like the stakes involved or whatever, right? But every social movement is like this. Legitimacy has to be one, and it's not one through formal means. It's one through like rhetorical means and like this kind of give and take and um, and stuff like that. So this is always a problem with any sort of social movement that exists. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've... But anyway, but anyway, to respond to like the, the, the claim that like, is Hamas like an, an elitist um, counter bureaucratic movement this way? I mean, maybe, right. That seems like very possible. Mm. That seems to be to matter or depend upon the facts on the ground. Like do Palestinians view it as such? Right. Um, and maybe some of them do. Maybe many of them do. It seems like um, just from like the polling, which is you know scattershot and it's difficult to to ascertain whether or not it's uh, representative of the population in Gaza, especially. It seems like there's a pretty big split 
uh, in a lot of ways between individuals. And obviously half of the population in Gaza is under 18. So what do you even say about that, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a really open question and something that's serious. And like, that's that seems like an important thing. Like, does the revolutionary vanguard of a movement like represents the the interests and the sort of do they sort of have they won legitimacy from the people that they represent? That's a super important question to ask. And it seems like in the article we read last week, um, Walter just kind of assumes, well, obviously they don't. Well, okay. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Like there was one election, you know, two decades ago and now they're just the, you know, it's like an oppressive stranglehold over, over the society. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems like you need to do some empirical work to find that out. Right. Like talk, <laughs> well, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Do the thing that no one in the media seems to want to do is talk to Palestinians in Gaza. Right. Not mm. nobody. I mean, there's, there are, you know, there's some of that, right? But it seems like, you know, it's very little of that uh, compared to... Yeah, you only ever get little snippets of like the one person who's really upset and is like, oh, this is Hamas's fault. And of course, Western media then plays that interview over and over and over and over again, right? Uh, that one you'll get. Or you'll get the other side that is like, oh, look at these like pro-terrorist activists that are out there celebrating Hamas. It's like those are the only two options that you have, right? It's yeah, like everybody's been, either yeah. a Hamas militant or they're actually like internally oppressed themselves and they hate Hamas. It's like, those are the two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the simplification of, of the idea really just disables any sort of understanding of what's actually happening politically in the area, right? Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So would you seems- say, so it would, so would you say then that, that we, we, we can't grant the supposition that Walzer seems to make in that demarcation between like the the counter elitist movement of terrorism that it is necessarily not representative of the voice of the oppressed that that that, that claim itself is a little bit it, that, that it's spurious and that it's actually really difficult to ascertain like how the the voice of the oppressed is granted like a coalescent political force because it seems that what he's saying then is that the, the the fully oppressed is only legitimate in its violent outbursts in like this this flattened ontological political sense where it's like there's no hierarchy and there's no there's no um like organization almost that it's just like that pure eruption of of activity and in those instances it's like yeah like the slave revolt which is funny because then he's basically again this goes back to your point last week he's like He's basically taking away agency and saying that it wasn't like an organized activity of human actors, but it was like it just uh, a, a bursting forth of chaos, right? And it's it's almost like he's he's inhumanizing it. Yeah, which of course we know isn't true because we know we know that Hamas was planning this out in the open for like months, <laughs> right? Probably basically. And we know that slave revolts were planned. Slave revolts were planned. It wasn't like they just like all of a sudden were sitting there and they're like, "Fuck it." You know, it's like, yeah, they were I mean, organized. Walter's and, thinking more of, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's thinking more of the paradigmatic example of like the the the, the master whips you one too many times, and so you just grab the whip from them and strangle them. Like that's the kind of outburst of rage that's like, yeah, totally get it, <laughs> right? No sense in which, oh, um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of what he's thinking of. 
But of course, yes, yeah, slave mm-hmm. revolts are, are not like that, right? They're they're planned and they're organized, and people debate about it within the movements, right? About like what should we do, what shouldn't we do, and they give reasons back and forth, and they talk about what they want in the end, and if the things are the tactics are engaging and are likely to achieve that, like they do all this stuff, and this is, I'm sure, was happening all within individuals who were engaging in these actions. In, in Gaza, as reprehensible as they as they might be, right? Is they're they're talking about these things. It's not just like an enraged animalistic um kind of outburst of violence or something like that, right? But then again, like I think the tools are here. Some of the tools are here. So like Walter's distinction between the 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 like violent outbursts uh, and, and just violent um attacks and behavior that are engaged in in by the person who's totally oppressed, right, are fully justified, and that the situation is at least murkier when you talk about a putative democracy. That seems at least like somewhat true, right? You just look at the the Black Freedom Struggle as being an example of that, right? Um, different than sort of you know pre Civil War South um, Black person in America, different sort of situation, and different interests for the individuals involved, right? Um, that's what's interesting about the Israel-Palestine uh, thing, and obviously he's not specifically talking about that in this in this essay, is that it's in between those two, right? Mm. It's not quite slavery in the sense of like every movement you engage in is violently controlled, right? But it's definitely not also like um, mere apartheid, like in the uh, antebellum South, right? So in Gaza, at least, right? Maybe like the, the situation or the, um, the situation of like uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel is a little bit more like that, right? They live in an apartheid state. They don't have the same rights as Israeli Jews, um, but they have some rights and they have some, they participate to some degree unequally mm-hmm. in the um, political system, right? Um, so maybe for them, the situation is similar, to what he's describing here as like a putative democracy, right? Not quite democratic, but like there's some formal rights and they're not quite, they're not equal, right? But there's like some give and take about what okay. um, oppressed did, citizens are willing to consider and stuff like that. Th- this is so important though, because this is where the actual, this goes back to that issue of the walls. Like where are the boundaries? Like, so internationally, mm-hmm. Palestine is viewed as... Uh, like a non-member observer state of the United Nations. And like over a hundred countries acknowledge Palestine as a state. But Israel does not. Israel views the Palestinian territories as disputed territories. Occupied territory, um, yeah. Well, they say disputed territories. The kind of like people are like, well, no, it's 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 occupied. And Israel are like, no, they're disputed, you know? So, but then here's what I wonder. So it's not like, it's not like what you have are two clear states in conflict with one another. As you see this similarly in Ukraine, right, with the Russian sort of justification over quote-unquote disputed territories that they would actually claim are they're being occupied in like the Donbass region and stuff like that, right? It's like, no, actually, those are our territories or in like the Crimea. It's like, no, those are our areas, you know? So it's like what I wonder then is like in the lands of Palestine, just that territory, right? Israel-Palestine, that whole territory. Like, how does Walzer's argument fit? Because even from, like, Israel's perspective, if they say these are disputed territories, does that mean that they're kind of, like, in a way, legitimating the 
the persistence of boundary wars? Or is it sort of like, actually it's one land, and within the one land are disputed territories within it, which then makes the Palestinian minority an oppressed minority within the singular land, and then it's not just the Palestinians in Israel proper, like you were just describing, but that even the citizens of Gaza and the West Bank would kind of be included within that, but they would be more excluded than those who are given some rights. Because, you know, it's like if you're Palestinian, you have like, what, four passports or some shit like that, right? And then uh, depending on which ones you hold, it, it dictates what you can do, right? So, But there's still a sense in which there's some sort of observance where they're included as members of the land of the disputed territories from Israel's perspective which then which makes me wonder then like how does this activity um do you see what I'm getting at I'm trying to kind of I, I just feel like it's not so easy to just be like well because you have one state over here and one state over here the it's an international conflict but that actually it's almost like a sort of like intra 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 it's not national because there's the division of the nation state is the issue but it's like an intra um an intra land an intra tapas conflict yeah i mean if, i think we're talking or um speaking like the same language here right it seems like um palestinians who are in gaza and the west bank in different situations right but they're not in the situation of the slave, right, with the master, nor are they in the situation of the formally recognized citizen who just has unequal rights, right, or something like that, right? Um, they're in between the two. This is what's unique about, like, being in an occupied, an unending occupation, basically, right, is okay, yeah, yeah. Um, you're not in the situation of, of the slave, mostly just because you're not next to the master, right? The, the slave... The reason why the slave's violence is so um, sort of like telling is that the slave is like around the master all day and so has the opportunity to commit violence against them, right? Um, the mm. occupied territory person isn't. They're like, they have fences around them. They're like if, if a slave was fenced in or something like that and not around uh, the master. Um, so it's a different kind of situation and has different kinds of opportunities for violence, right? And it's a different kind of sort of political violence and political inequality, right? And so it's important that like Walter's whole uh, argument here is, is sort of couched in there being these two kinds of injustices someone can face, right? Total injustice, which is like easy to understand, uh, even though it's, you know, complicated in practice, right? And then like mostly injustice or like a degree of injustice within a larger system of justice, even a failed justice, right? An attempt to justice that just fails or something like that, right? Slavery isn't even an attempt at justice. But like, you know, maybe the, the US um, before the civil rights movement was an attempt at justice that was failing or something like that, right? And so maybe mm -hmm. if you're the person who's being oppressed in that situation, you want the, the failed justice to be a success, right? <laughs> or something like that. Whereas the enslaved person, there's, there's no sense of that because there's not even an attempt here of justice to happen. Um, what about the person who's like in an occupied territory where, a, you know, the the majority population of the larger territory completely controls what goes in and what goes out and what they can do and leaves them in debilitating conditions and unable to flourish in any way and continually enacts violence upon them, right? That's 
a different kind of situation. And so this quote that I mentioned earlier, right, equal rights cannot be won by a revolutionary attack upon the social and political structures within which equality is being sought, assumes equality is being sought. And I mm. wonder, do Palestinians in Gaza seek equality? Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like it, <laughs> right? Because closer to the slave, not the exact kind of situation, but closer to them, equality isn't being sought by, like justice isn't being sought, right? So why would you seek it when it isn't being sought? It's more like what Walter is calling secessionism. Not exactly, but he's saying like, look, in a secessionist movement, Terrorism makes more sense because you don't think you want to be integrated into the larger system of justice that exists. You want to be removed from it, probably because you think it's a, it's a complete and utter failure at justice, if even an attempt at justice at all. And, and well, and, even the, and the system here is the Zionist regime, right? But then also more broadly, it's the global community that is recognized by the United Nations to be – so there there is a sense in which I wonder though is – a type of equality being sought, which is an equality of self-determination and recognition within international law, which that is being sought to some degree. Oh, sure. But they're not, they're not attacking the UN, right? <laughs> That's the idea is like, if you think that, that Israel is an ethno-nationalist regime that is built constitutively to exclude certain people, right, then you probably don't want equality within that system because that system is defined by exclu- exclusion, Right. Of you, yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly Palestinians in, in Gaza and the West Bank like will call on the UN and other international organizations to um, include them within their system of justice, right, or whatever. Um, but that that seems different than like calling on Israel to recognize them as citizens or something like that, right? Well, it's, why even ask if you know that the that the answer is no. Right. Or like the answer is very clear, been clearly demonstrated for decades or something like that. Right. Like it's important. Mm-hmm. The Great March of Return in 2019, from what I remember, was not really addressing Israel. It was addressing the international world. Right. Mm. To say, like, look, look, look at what injustice is being done to us. Um, whereas, you know, if you're in the black radical freedom struggle, if you're in the civil rights movement in the U.S., um, those sort of protests and and when and revolutionary actions and whatever were like addressed to the American people as being like, look what's happening to us, right? This mm-hmm. is unjust. So yeah, the the, the person need- being addressed seem important here. But so then, but do you think we need to make a distinction between the activities on the seventh of October by Hamas that those are different from pro-Palestinian support of resistance? both within the occupied territories and internationally, maybe they are not only directed towards the Zionist regime, and maybe this is where the water gets muddy, is that people are like, it's not just that people are supporting Hamas and what it did, it's supporting resistance more broadly. And the the, the, the activist cry, the very cry that this also is what Walter de- delegitimates, right? He says, no, the activist cry in support of Palestinian resistance is illegitimate because it's just supporting a terrorist cause. But maybe it's not. Maybe it is calling for equality in the international sense, much like the March of Return in 2019. I mean, maybe. It seems like probably not in the in the case of like the October 7th attacks, right? Like that's – that doesn't seem like a cry for equality. Right, that's no, no, no. Um, that, that's what I mean. Not those attacks, but the support now, the pro-Palestinian oh, okay. support 
now those those resistance movements that Walter delegitimates because right he says they're illegitimate because they're only supporting a terrorist regime and its activities. But my point is that that even within Palestine, pro-Palestinian resistance movements that are that are inflamed right now, and then internationally that are inflamed, that Walter illegitimates, that the these people that we talked about previously in your shitty minute, that they're kind of like trying to crying, that that's that is exactly what they're saying. And so you have both things happening at the same time. You have the outburst of initial violence, which isn't obviously just uh, excluded to like that one that one sequence, right? It's been, you know, there have been multiple events, right, over the decades. So you've got that activity from that that organization and its supporters. But then you've got this other thing that it does seem like it is appealing to like equality, international recognition, etc. And and so then Walter's maybe conflating the two, but maybe he ought not to. Yeah, I mean the big problem here seems to be that we don't know largely because Israel's killing all the journalists, <laughs> right? So like, um, how would we find out what Palestinians on the ground think about these things and how they think about um, their own political enfranchisement and how it would be realized and achieved and what their political goals are and stuff like that? Like to some degree, we know that there's, there's some um, Palestinian, usually it's Palestinian citizens of Israel that are the ones that are on podcasts and writing articles and stuff. Um, the people on the ground in Gaza and the West Bank, we don't hear as much from, uh, largely because, you know, they're, they're fenced off from, from those things. And obviously, you know, more journalists have been killed in, in Gaza um, than like in any major conflict ever, uh, or just disproportionately a number of them, given the amount of time that's, that's passed so far. Um, Yes, that makes the whole situation difficult to like understand what people on the ground think about those things. Um, but what about the international community? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, certainly the international community, insofar as they're like beholden to international solidarity or whatever, are probably going to think those ways, right? Um, but that seems less important than like what Palestinians on the ground think, right? Yeah, but it was interesting because Walter's article is directed at a lot of people outside of Palestine, right? And saying, like, delegitimizing them. And so much of, like, the literati and the online tweeters and things like that, they're also trying to delegitimize the international community's support because they're making the conflation rather than recognizing that that there are genuine concerns for that claim towards equal rights. The very thing that Walter says ought to be the thing that that activists should be aiming towards. In a putative democracy. Right. Yeah. But only if that's what they want. If the if the people on the ground don't want that, then it doesn't matter. <laughs> that's kind of what's constitutive of the uh. argument here, right? Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what I'm like denying the premise here. It's like, well, I don't know though it's what they want. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think you're right to point out that like what's better about this article, at least, than the one we talked about last week, was that it's it's targeting um, activists who are like uh, embedded in the community themselves, like organic activists, right? And saying like, how do they best represent the people that they claim to represent? Like what are their obligations to them? Rather than like, why are um, annoying college students in my classes uh, saying they love Hamas or whatever, right? Um, which I don't know, that just seems like less, much less interesting, let alone like, does this even matter? Um, yeah, so... 
I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. So one thing I thought was really interesting about this essay was there's a part in the middle where he's talking about like, what if you're an activist, um, revolutionary activist, and you're, um, I think it's in the context of like, not full, not total oppression, not like enslavement, right? But like serious oppression and a putative democracy. Um, and you're thinking, look, we can engage in violent activist, um, we can engage in violence, right? And it won't achieve our goals because we're too small and we're not going to win. Um, but we'll create a crisis and in that crisis force the oppressed minority to rise up because they'll have no choice at that point because yeah. they'll be deemed the enemy by the state yeah. or whatever, right? Um, and that will have the effect of bringing about the revolution uh, through whatever means, right? Like we'll, we'll force the hand, right? And Walsher's kind of like wavers a bit and is like, yeah, like I get it. I get why someone would think that. It's understandable. It's not like it's unintelligible, right? But it seems just wrong. And I think he even uses that language, right? Of just like, it just seems wrong. Like you shouldn't do that. Um, you shouldn't force the hand of the people you represent. You should like act in concert with them. Um, and it's funny that like this is written uh, 53 years ago, right? But that seems like the only rationale I can think of for why the October 7th attacks happened, right? Um, and, I, and I'm not super studied on this or anything, but that seems to kind of be what the rationale was, right? Like, of course, Hamas didn't think they were going to win, right? Against a nuclear state. I mean, come on, right? Um, <laughs> right. But it does seem like the Great March of Return didn't work. Basically, no one cared. A whole bunch of people got shot. Um, nothing was going to work, right? The international order was happy to just ignore Gaza. And so it led yeah, to people this, like, like, like Norman Finkelstein. He says that uh, in 2020, he basically gave up on the issue. He felt like a radical despair. Someone who spent, you know, decades and decades writing about, um, mm-hmm. Israel, Palestine relations. He basically was like, I gave up on it. I thought that there was no hope for anything there. And that seems to be, and it seems like from all the reporting, like the reason why Israel wasn't prepared for the attacks is because they kind of thought so too. They kind of thought Hamas was like in a sort of equilibrium with them. Yeah, you fire some rockets. Yeah, we shoot some some kids, and like, you know, that's how we were. That's how we talk to each other, right? Um, mm. But it's not going to like. There's not going to be you know uh, a huge violent outburst or anything because everyone's kind of okay with the status quo, and they weren't prepared for the fact that obviously. Um, Hamas was not happy with the status quo. Um, it's like that seems to be the rationale for the struggle, not because they thought they were going to win um, by engaging in like hostage taking or whatever, but uh, and the rampant murders. But like this, will at least you can't shut up about this. Like you can't ignore this. Like you will acknowledge our existence in whatever way possible, uh, and that maybe that will get the international order to wake up and and see what's happening or something like that, right? And that seems like an intelligible rationale um, in the sense of like, wh- why why do this when you know you're going to lose kind of a thing, right? Uh, pr- purely prudentially here, right? Um, do you think that's the kind of thing that Walter's talking about in talking about the, um, the sort of terrorist logic of like engaging in violent action so as to force the crisis that that – that's a last ditch effort to achieve the political goals. Yeah, because he does quote some of the kind of black radicals that appeal to heaven, right? And that it's like they they find value and worth 
in dying for the cause kind of thing, which, so I think he, I think, yeah, that probably would be something at least adjacent to what he's discussing. But here's the thing. I, I feel like the difference is this for him. And, and I think there's something interesting to think about here because, so let's take the issue of the slave that picks up the whip and says no more and strangles his master. Well, he he's going to get tracked down and killed, right? And maybe it was a foolish decision because then maybe also like other people within his like immediate circle, like they're going to get punished a little bit as well. So it's like, but then, but then, you know, people who can organize a little bit within that kind of like slave revolt, you know, they'll push back and, and Walter's like, yeah, but we can't really intervene. We kind of understand it's a, uh, an outburst that's going to happen and, and whatever. But what's different here, and I, th- I think for Walter, and, and probably actually different too from my perspective, is that if that were the logic of Hamas, there's something really calloused because they had to know that the response was going to be disproportionate and they had to know Mm -hmm. in one of the most densely populated places on the planet that that meant that innocents were going to be killed disproportionately which falls into this instrumental logic on the part of hamas that i find to be actually kind of reprehensible and i don't know if that's yeah because then it because then it just seems like well then it was a bad strategy a miscalculation and even though maybe if you could say that in the long run then it turns the eyes of the international community and yada 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 like is that the right approach to i i don't know and then i can just hear i can hear people being like oh that's a very privileged take and maybe maybe it is i don't know that's what i'm trying to work through here you know yeah, privileged because why? Can you elaborate on that? Because I'm not the one that's dealing with it. You know, I'm not in the situation, and that's uh, it's easy for you to say. You know, uh, while you're sitting in your office, and bombs aren't being dropped on your head. You know, which is the typical mm-hmm. response where that the kind of like the popular response that people say to justify what's going on um, with with Hamas, and it's like you have no right to speak out because you have not you're not in their shoes, kind of thing. You know standpoint epistemology kind of shit yeah 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 it's tough like i don't know what to say about it exactly but there does do something to the to the like what what is the that the revolutionary activists obligation to their own community right um that seems to be i at least agree with walter on this that's an important question that the activist needs to ask, right? And if we're on the outside and we're evaluating it and trying to figure out what we think about it, one thing we want to try to figure out is how are the activists who are engaging in these actions um, relating to their own community, right? And again, what's so tough is like, we just don't know, right? Um, and the ins and outs of, of, of Hamas as a political organization is just not one we know, right? And, I can, and we can guess, given that the kinds of actions that they were willing to engage in, um, probably what they what those relations are, right? But again, those are those are just kind of speculation, right? Um, but again, yeah, it seems like the important question here isn't even just like Hamas, right? Like, I don't know, I'm kind of fine, just you know, any action that like 
wantonly kills children is awful. <laughs> um, it's kind of like the, you know, like the Haitian revolution, right? Like, yeah, it's obvious that the slave takes the whip and kills the master. That's justified. Well, what if the slave takes that same whip and goes and kills his children? Right? That happened. And the Haitian slave revolt, right? Tons of violence against uh, women and children. Um, mm. And so, like, that's a lot harder to deal with. Um, and again, it, that, that the, the problem here is that in, in this article, in this essay, Walter, like, creates this binary between, like, the slave engaging in violence and the oppressed person in a putative democracy engaging in violence. And, like, there's a huge spectrum in between those two things, right? Um, mm. So, like, what do you do with everything in between? And that's much, yeah. much murkier. It's like the questions are important. And I think that's good to talk about stuff like, you know, how does activists relate to their community? But like thinking about what makes sense and what's intelligible and what's let alone like what's justified, like way down the line, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm. Seems so much more difficult to answer. Again, not to say that like, I'm not trying to say like, you know, Hamas's actions were justified, but just trying to understand what would make them intelligible in the first place um, as a uh, form of representing uh, their community, right? Through revolutionary violent action like this. Um, yeah. I don't know, man. Yeah. This goes back to, to, to the, what we talked a little bit about Fanon last week and a lot of the kind of like decolonial sentiments, anti-colonial sentiments that really characterize post-colonial movements are rooted in a full rejection of the organization that they see as the oppressor in the first place, right? Which is that, uh, like you were saying earlier, it's like, well, but does Hamas want equal rights within the Zionist regime, the sort of ethno-nationalist regime? Like, probably not. And then not just Hamas, but more broadly, does the PLO, do Palestinians want that? Probably not, right? Um, how they go about articulating that opposition is different, and it's going to be varied in all kinds of degrees from the kind of like most extreme forms of like violent militancy down to kind of the most extreme forms of reformism, right? Um, and everything in between. But essentially, I don't think that, that anyone who is kind of on the pro-Palestinian side of self-determination, independence, whatever, wants inclusion into the ethno-nationalist state which means that the very struggle is a contestation of the existing order, the dominant order. Or, yeah, and, and it's done either from within the order or as like an opposing order. And what I mean by that is like it's done within the order, like the global political order, in seeking some sort of reformist measures. Maybe, maybe that's the two-state solution. Um, the single-state solution, that there could be like this integrated, heterogeneous, like Muslim, Jewish, Christian, you know, uh, country like that, that, that seems even further afield. Um, but I know a lot of people, especially much more lefty types, they're like, well, that should be the fucking answer anyway. But that seems way more difficult to even kind of wrap my head around how that would work. Um, because you just cannot imagine Israel giving up any ground. 
and and that that's that's part of the problem, right? Is that Israel digs its heels in and appears to give concessions, but it doesn't seem like it's giving any concessions. So like you were talking about after 2019, that march based on kind of like the the right of return that doesn't go anywhere, that appeal to humanity, that appeal to the pre-67 borders and things like that. People are, it, it didn't do anything. So now you have, you know, three and a half years of, of foment that's just bubbling over, which leads to the 7th of October, that outburst. And it's because in the interim, what was continuing was just this like, like boa constrictor squeezing out with more settlements in the West Bank, um, deepening of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And it was just the movement, the momentum was all at the behest of the state of Israel and its allies on the global, uh, in the global sphere, which most notably is the United States, right? Which really kind of has like ultimate power over the purse strings and ultimate power over kind of like military action and political decisions. And so, um, yeah, I kind of lost my, my thread of thought there, but yeah. No, I think that what you're kind of getting at there is the two most important points in this whole discourse, right? Are one, um, Israel has agency, right? And so like they set the terms for everything that happens in the region. They're a literal nuclear yeah. state, right? They're not going to lose. There's no danger of losing, right? So they set the terms for everything that happens in Israel and in Gaza and the West Bank, right? In every way. Um, and that also means that like, because it's an occupied territory, and this is even straight up Geneva Convention, international order, like centrist liberal bullshit, right? It's like, you don't have a right of self-defense against an occupied people, right? That's straight up Geneva Convention, right? Um, and that, so that, that, you know, you don't even have to like appeal to, you can appeal to like the existing juridical political order, to to speak to that fact, right? Um, so Israel sets the the terms, and in all these debates, so anything that you want to evaluate as far as the actions of Hamas or any other um, Palestinian group uh, in Gaza, West Bank, or in Israel proper, um, is going to be reacting to a status quo entirely controlled by Israel, right? Mm. Uh, and any any attempt to evaluate those things without that context is going to necessarily be uh, obfuscating what's important about the situation, right? Um, Which seems to me to be like one of the most important counterpoints is to say that, and that's where I see so much of the pro-Palestinian resistance that's gaining speed internationally at least um, directed at is that, that no, 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 Israel pulls the strings. And now this is what's leading to a lot of things that are tipping into anti-Semitism. We can't fucking deny that, right? Absolutely, the anti-Semites are... The, the anti-Semites have been inflamed and emboldened and people who otherwise maybe wouldn't express anti-Semitic um, ideas are finding finding opportunity or finding the resources to, to do so, right? But, but that's what it seems to be that the pro-Palestinian resistance movement is moving towards is a, is a like, wait a second, there's this hegemony in the world, uh, you know, and maybe it's being confronted by like kind of like the emergence of multipolar powers, but nevertheless, the U.S. kind of dominates things, and Israel is kind of like a deputy state. Now, some people maybe get that order reversed, and maybe that's where like the kind of like uh, 
momentum of anti-Semitism comes from is that actually Israel secretly, the cabal is secretly behind everything. But but really, the, the, the contestation is against that hegemony. Let's call it like the, uh, the U.S.-Israel allied axis or whatever you want to fucking call it. And, and that's what, that's what it's about. It's like, well, wait a second. Like, let's, that needs to stop because anything that happens right now is ultimately determined in the first instance by those actors on the political stage. And that needs to be changed. Yeah, exactly. And that's the, the important point about thinking about sort of young people in America, you know, all of a sudden gaining this kind of pro-Palestinian fervor, right? It's like, yeah, well, maybe some of that's uh, misguided or whatever. There's always going to be parts of that kind of stuff that's that's misguided, right? But generally speaking, it comes from the fact that we don't have any control over what Hamas does, right? Um, they're going to do what they're going to do. And you can like sit in your armchair and evaluate it and talk you know, philosophically about how, whether or not terrorist actions are justified or whatever, right? But ultimately, ain't got nothing to do with you. But what Israel does has a lot to do with us, right? Like they basically, yeah. we control the purse strings for Israel and That's right. we have That's all right. of the power to control what they do and uh, don't do, right? Be, Netanyahu has even said like the reason why people in Israel need to trust him is because he knows how to deal with Biden. And that's like, imagine pointing to a foreign leader and being like, I know how to work this guy. Don't worry. That's what matters. That's why you should elect me or keep me in power, right? We control the purse strings when it comes to Israel and we can have all the leverage. So if if Americans are talking a lot more about um Palestinian suffering than about Israeli suffering. It's mostly because we control one and not the other, or we have a large degree of control and leverage over one and not the other, right? And so it's it's appropriate that, that we would be much more concerned with the one we have control over than the one that we don't, let alone the fact that there's obvious disproportionate violence happening for one and not the other. And, you know, the one that uh, Israeli suffering is like, other than the hostages that are still currently um, – uh, still currently hostages, right? Other than that, again, we have no control over that. Um, the the disproportionate suffering that's going to happen now and in the future that we have some control over stopping is going to be almost entirely all Palestinian, right? Hmm. And I think related to, but kind of um, and intertwined with, but just a little bit different from the fact that, so United States, the United States pulls, like, pulls the purse strings is... Other Western nations, um, or or allies of Israel, for example, Australia, where I live, or you know Western Europe, or like we've seen a lot of like German uh, solidarity, uh, uh, Israel solidarity, or Israel support, right? And a lot of that is not necessarily directly tied to the purse strings, even though it it, it is in some ways, right? But it's also like that that it's about like the cultural support of the global system that does seem to aim towards the support of these particular allied nations or these nations that have certain interests, right? And and so like the the pro-Palestinian resistance activists in the international community are I think also even though they might not be directly appealing to like the financial, the direct financial involvement of their governments, but it's also a recognition that we need to have capital D discourse taking place that sheds light on how it is that this global system operates, right? 
And we could use kind of like world systems theory here because I think there's a political economic angle on this as well, right? Which is like you've got these center states and then the peripheral states. And Palestine is clearly not a part of the center. And even though like a nation like Australia is kind of like a center peripheral state, it's not like a center center state, um, there's a recognition that that global political power is consolidated by these center states that are going to continue the processes of uneven and disproportionate power unless we call this shit out and and something needs to change and i do think that that's also part of the kind of like global solidarity movement with palestine yeah and you know, i'm not going to deny at all that there's like a, a a sense in which there's a global political world order that is sort of keeping this as a status quo for the sake of you know uh un- uninterrupted capital flows or whatever right at the same time there's a huge tension with regard to this specific issue, right? I mean, how many UN votes that are 144 to two or whatever have there been, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a real tension with regard to this issue. And again, like even the Geneva Convention is very clear um, about uh, rights to self-defense on uh, occupied territories and so or illegally occupied territories. And so, um, yeah, there's a, there's a real tension here and which is why you can pull up that thread right there's a thread to be pulled and that doesn't mean like pulling the thread's gonna like um make the thing come out the way you want pulling the thread sometimes means like destroying the sweater or whatever right to abuse this metaphor um, but how much of those votes at the un though are just like symbolic though you know like i mean it's the UN. like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so so that's what i mean it's like i think a lot of the pressure from the voices are also saying like hey yeah it's great that you can that you can make these votes you know from your your desk and that's great but like what about sanctions or what about like actually doing things that will force the hand of israel united states from the continuance of their activities right like there are things that could be done that aren't just simply like trying to use the international court, which Israel ignores. So it's kind of like, yeah, it, it doesn't really cost much for a hundred plus nations to be like, yes, we we call for a ceasefire, right? Like materially do something about it then. And I think that's what people are frustrated about. They're like, there's this sense in which, and I think this ties into a larger global political sense of apathy and frustration that people have where they feel disempowered because it's like and I think that's where some of this frustration is coming from is it's kind of like reinforcing that by kind of looking at how things operate and they're like oh maybe we don't really have that much power and that fucking sucks but we need to and and we demand it and it's and it's like coming from like this desperation almost yeah I mean the way you pull on that thread isn't through like another UN vote obviously that's not going to do it right it's like 144 to 2 <laughs> no. got the veto power of the US right but you know how you pull on the thread I mean I'm not saying like here, here's your like political uh, philosopher's stone and you get this and you get whatever you want right it's like <laughs> what happens if, what happens if Biden loses in large part because of this right do mm. you see a democratic candidate in 2028 who all of a sudden is like yeah I'm going to make Israel abide by certain conditions to get any aid, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like like mm-hmm. real conditions, mm-hmm. right? Not just like symbolic ones or formal ones or whatever, like real substantive ones. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's that seems pie in the sky, right? But it's it's something. I'm not saying that therefore like, you know, do some like crazy uh, 
accelerationist shit and like make Biden lose so Democrats do that. Never going to never trust Democrats to learn the lesson. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. Just saying like, you know, this is why the pressure is being put on people. And it's why when people say like, hey, guess what? I'm never going to vote for Genocide Joe now because of this. Um, you know, people on the Internet can hand ring all they want. But it's like, well, I guess now you got to win back their vote. Right. Better do something. Hmm. Um, so there are like levers to pull, I guess is what I'm saying. There, there's, it's not like the, the, the political order is so overwhelmingly on one side that there's nothing that can be done proactively. And we're seeing people do it right now. They're engaging in the dialogue and the debates and the strategies and um, not saying if it's going to work necessarily, right? But there, there's at least something intelligible uh, to be done about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on like bringing this back around to Walter? I've got one thing that I thought was kind of interesting and it's just but a tiny little quip, but anything that you wanted to say? No, go for it, dude. What do you got? Uh, it's just something that uh, Andrew Benjamin quoted yesterday and it's a Heraclitus quote from uh, Fragment 82. And Heraclitus says, the people should fight for their laws as well as their walls, as well as their city walls. And um, the thing that was interesting that Benjamin wanted to emphasize here is that there was something about, um, obviously this is within the context of kind of like a different situation than than Palestine-Israel, but I think we can sort of like universalize it. And this fight that he is discussing here is, I can't remember what the Greek word is, but apparently it's the word for like, like not just like have reasonable disputation with people but they're like fucking struggle right um they should really fucking fight for their laws as well as their their walls and i don't know it seems that there's a sense in which like the construction of the walls the borders the barriers of entry and things like that that so often there's a sense in which they're just erected by those who have control over political and capital power right but that maybe the ideal of uh, a sort of democratic situation is that there there's an allowance of people to actually fight for their laws, the creation of the laws, and also for the barriers, the borders, etc. And if, and if we are going to have any sort of thing like a world politics, a global politics, then that means that everybody's always already included in the first instance. And I think that's maybe the fundamental difference here is that the international community does not recognize certain people. They are not included. Um, so even if the image of Rome that guides global political theory, not only at the level of the nation state, but also the global political, geopolitical system, um, if that is the framework that's going to guide things, whether or not we, we can debate whether or not that's the right model or not, but maybe there is a sense in which that's the case, the kind of city in that way, um, then that means that there has to be a sense in which people are allowed to be able to actually struggle for the laws and for the walls. And uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. This brings it back around to the discussion about the function of homes, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the proper function of a home is to give you a space to enable you to do the things that matter, right? And in a political sense, right. like to achieve freedom and equality and uh, justice and fraternity and liberty and whatnot, right? Um, and so far as homes don't function that way, function to exclude and not achieve those things and make those things unrealizable, uh, mm. they ought to be done away with. 
Mm. Yeah. That's like a, a wall that's not a home in that instance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Who knew Heraclitus had bars? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we'll put we'll put a link down in the in the show notes for both of these Walter articles. I think they're interesting to work through. the The one that we're kind of we read for this week is uh, is much longer. Um, so prepare yourself to sit down and really work through it. And it's much more involved, but um, interesting stuff to kind of stimulate these kinds of discussions. So yeah, dude, thanks for helping me work through it. It's a fucking it's kind of consumed my thoughts over the last couple of weeks. So thanks. Yeah, me too. I'm really glad that you found the article and sent me a bunch of quotes to, to mull over. That was great. Yeah. Cool. 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 All right. So the last thing we got to do before we get out of here is have our sticky leaves segment. For those who don't know, the sticky leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us meaning and a potentially, although hopefully not meaningless world. So, Austin, what's doing it for you this week? Uh, well, um, I'm just going to keep it short and sweet. I just had uh, a few days at an academic conference, and it's been a while since I've been at an academic conference, and I just feel rejuvenated. I remember once I had um, a supervisor that we were chatting about it, uh, being at a workshop, and he was like, you just come to life in this kind of environment. And I was like, I do, <laughs> don't I? <laughs> And, um, like, I just, I, I love those kinds of environments. I mean, it's basically this, like, but for, like, three days, and it, you're not always the active. It's like, like, in this, it's great because you and I just get to fucking agonize over things that, 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 that we can think through, right? You're much more passive as you're listening, um, even though there obviously is like active engagement with your thoughts and things like that, but it's just mm-hmm. like you're inundated by thoughts and ideas. And then when you do have a break, people just can't shut up. It's just, you know, just like talking. <laughs> yeah. And it, and maybe this is because you just get a bunch of researchers who aren't able to actually do that all the time. And then they finally are released into this environment where they just like the floodgates open. And so I guess my, my sticky leaves is just for me, like how enriching these types of communities are and in these types of environments and whether it's being a part of a reading group in your local community which i'm also a part of like a reading group here or we have this this thing called like the salon where we get together periodically and we just talk about things um that that are important to us you know usually political and social issues but um reading group salon community group um, getting get going to Mandarin Wong and ordering Chinese food, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, like I just want to encourage people to find those those spaces where and find those people, and and if it's your Reddit forum or your Discord, fucking whatever, um, I still want to advocate for the value of like in person. Um, things, but Troy and I have the podcast, which is not in person, and it feeds my soul so much. And um, but I just want to encourage people to like find those kinds of communities where you can really struggle and think deeply on things and hear other things. Like I heard papers over the past three days that are not in my area of expertise. Some of them are are, are even really far afield, and they just enriched my soul. And so also a part of that being a part of the the community is not just being in the the quote-unquote echo chamber where you're just with people who just fully agree with everything you say, but that actually be with people who are going to cause you to struggle about like what you think and how you view the world and things like that. And I just, 
I just find it like life giving. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll co-sign that, dude. There's um, the the conversation is the most appropriate mode for philosophical work to happen. That's what matters most, I think. That's where like the good stuff happens, right? And papers only exist in order to facilitate conversation. That's my view. Um, yeah. That's also what I say when I'm procrastinating and running a paper. I'm having too many good conversations, so that can wait. Um, yeah. But that's why conferences are so good, right? Not because of the presentations where someone's giving a paper, but with the conversations that happen in between um, and after it's all over, right? That's the good stuff. Mm. And there's something about like yeah. the spontaneous give and take of the conversation that's just, that's the magic. That's where all the good stuff happens, right? Yeah, totally. It was interesting. There was a paper that was given on slow cinema. And I had to go see that panel because I'm a big fan of, of slow cinema. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing because I was like, oh, shit, it just so happened that there was a paper uh, on slow cinema uh, at this panel on like film and philosophy. And um, it was so interesting because the the scholar that was presenting was basically doing like a phenomenological kind of in some ways um, qualitative data analysis of people's experience of slow cinema. Um, and And... And it was so interesting that he talked about like how slow cinema is oftentimes viewed as being something that allows the audience to engage in like a meditative and active, um, an active like participatory sense with the film. Whereas like standard Hollywood films, you're much more passive and it's not meditative, right? You're just receiving images. And he <laughs> says, well, the ex- the experience actually of the people that we've interviewed, it's actually kind of both, and it actually like flip-flops and some people you're engaged and then you're disengaged and some people tend towards more engagement and some people tend towards more disengagement and some people are active and some people are passive and some people flip through that depending on you know over the course of the film and some people are more active and then less active depending on if it's more narrative or if it's more of just like static shots of nature or whatever it is and I kind of felt I feel the same way about the entire like intellectual pursuit is that there's moments of like and especially within the context of going to a conference or being in a community of people or a reading group or something, is is that there's moments of where you're an active participant and sometimes where you're passive and sometimes where you're you're engaged and then you're disengaged and you're more engaged here and you're less engaged. And I think that all of that is actually like a really cool experience to be able to comfortably allow yourself to flit through all of those phenomenological states, you know? It's like life, life as uh, observing slow cinema. That's the title of my new paper. <laughs> as the as the resident introvert of Owls at Dawn, um, I will say that I definitely appreciate having the bits of space and passivity. Mm. I think you could do with 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 some of that. I need a lot of that. So thanks <laughs> to everybody out there who provides a little bit of space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And thank you to the listeners who allow us to have these 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 conversations and that, you know, that tune in every week. We really do appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, feel free to shoot us emails, owlsatdawnpodcast at gmail.com. Um, follow us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn or x or whatever the fuck it's called. We're on Instagram. Um, we don't really do much on Instagram, but we do share like uh, tiles of new images that we make for for episodes and, and stuff like that. But you can follow us if you would like, just so you can be a, be informed for when a new episodes are dropped. 
Um, and uh, Patreon. Patreon.com slash Owls at Dawn if you can throw us some pennies to help continue to support what we're doing. We were just talking before we, we started recording. We have some some goals that would require some resources to be able to do some like video recording, like live recording, and then like some further editing, like chopping up little segments so that we could release just the shitty minute and like maybe release just the sticky leaves and then create like playlists and things like that and, and then snippets and trailers and all kinds of things like that. But those require some resources, so uh, we're hopefully building and we're figuring that out. But uh, if you can help us out at patreon.com slash at dawn, it'll go a long way in, uh, in helping us to be able to achieve some of those goals. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it, man. I mean, unless unless I'm forgetting something and, and you want to say anything. I mean, just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Tasvidani, American Constitution. Yeah.